So what, what, give me one of your takeaways from your class yesterday, not today. In the morning, what did you learn in class yesterday? Yes. Oh, things can be interpreted differently depending on the tone. Abs- that is awesome. So I'll give you, I'm going to say a statement and you, and you folks tell me what it means, okay? Here's my statement. I didn't tell John you were stupid. What am I saying? I didn't tell John you were stupid. Somebody else did, right. I didn't tell John you were stupid. I told somebody else. I didn't tell John you were stupid. I told him you were an idiot. Exactly. So, it, Right. So the reality is that that is huge. The tone of voice is huge in our communication. So what was one takeaway from today? Other than the fact that John's stupid. What was the takeaway from today's class? I'm old. I don't hear so good. Ooh, we may have prejudices we don't know about. That is, that, that's huge, too. And you know what? She's right. Every single one of us has prejudice. We just aren't aware of it. And the best thing in all the world is if we can somehow have others, have the Lord, have the Holy Spirit reveal to us the prejudices that we have in our lives. Okay, so I'm going to get started by throwing my iPad on the floor. How many of you folks are going to go to college? Raise your hand. How many of you folks are excited about going to college? How many of you folks know anything about college? At least you think you do. Does anybody know the name of the song I just played? Probably not. 
It's called The Battle at Devil's Den. It was written, it was written to communicate the emotions and the horror and the danger at one of the most deadly battles at Gettysburg, a battle at Devil's Den, which was a, an area strewn with boulders. And as the armies fought over that area, they were exposed to all kinds of artillery fire. So they called the place Devil's Den, and that's supposed to depict the battle at Devil's Den. I want to play, I want to read a verse to you. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Full disclosure, I never graduated from college. I've taken courses in college, I have been a guest lecturer at college, but I did not attend a college and graduate from a college. I never spent, other than EMU and Juniata, I never spent a night in a dorm. So you're not, gonna, you're not here to listen to me today. I've got an expert that we've, that we've recorded. There was a gentleman, he is, his name is Dr. Richard Baer, and Dr. Baer is a professor at Cornell University. I, he's a man of faith. His roots are in our church in the Syracuse area. Many, many years ago, I remember as a little boy, his father being a preacher. But Dick spent his entire life in academia. And he's going to tell you what it's like from a professor's point of view to go to college and to be in college. I've got two brothers here that are going to share some life experiences. I also have some testimonies from some sisters that I'm going to read for you. I'm going to read it for you because I wouldn't want them to have to be here and tell you what they went through in college. I will read an excerpt for you. Like Lot pulled from the fires of sinful Sodom and Gomorrah, my soul and body were rescued. So as Dick's going to say, we don't really want to scare you. We want to prepare you. Hitting the wrong button. There we go. I'll probably hit the wrong button multiple times today. Let's find out how Dr. Bear got started. Well, I started out actually in philosophy at Syracuse and, and in Germany at the University of Tübingen and then did some biblical and theological studies and ended up doing a doctorate in New Testament. But after about 10 years of teaching New Testament, I decided I really wasn't all that interested in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin. And uh, I loved the teaching. The teaching was absolutely wonderful. But I, during that period, I began to develop more of an interest in ethics, the nature of education, but particularly uh, how we treat our natural environment. And then about... Uh, I think it was in 1974, Cornell invited me to come and start a new program in environmental ethics. And it was just a wonderful uh, time.
The, you know, universities are absolutely wonderful places. I'm going to say some critical things about Cornell and other universities, but the, the university is a marvelous place in, in many respects. I used to ask my mom when I was much younger, what, what will Dick be when he gets through with college? Because it took me a lot of years. <laughs> she used to shake her head and say, an old man. And in some ways she was right. But I say this because I'm going to be fairly critical of higher education, but at its best, higher education is really wonderful. So I asked Dick, why do we need to have these conversations? We need to have these conversations ahead of time. It's very much like if I were a Christian ecologist and I wanted to take a group of 30 people into the Congo in the heart of Africa to see God's beautiful creation in the jungle. But I never talked about parasites or poisonous snakes or vaccinations or antibiotics that we might need. We just trotted off into the jungle. That would be very, very irresponsible for me as an ecologist and travel leader to do that. I think this is what we're doing with our young people. They're pretty well grounded in the Bible and in Christian thinking. But we need to help them understand this is a very, very different world where there are very real dangers. Uh, and it's much better to be aware of how these dangers function ahead of time and then make our adjustments. And, and I think it's a, the, the burden here is on us as adults, not just to tell the kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, because once they're in their, that environment, if they have no understanding of the framework and the worldview commitments that dominate, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. Now I'm going to read you a testimony. I had already been converted for several years when I went to live at school. I survived high school by avoiding the social scene and making youth group my sole friend base. Most people knew I was a Christian, and while I wasn't particularly outgoing, I had many opportunities to share why I was different. I felt that in spite of social pressures, I managed to come out on top, and God gave, pra and God gave praise for getting me through it. Because of this, I wasn't too concerned about living away at college. Thankfully, the school was just over an hour away and I had a car, so I went home every single weekend. I knew it would be important to continue involvement in church, plug back into my family, and avoid the weekend parties and pressures to get involved in them. It seemed like the perfect scenario, but the truth was I had no idea what I was head that I was headed into an intense spiritual battle that I would barely escape from. I lived on a co-ed floor and had, had a social, non-practicing Muslim as a roommate. Most of our floor was freshmen, but we also had some senior guys on our floor. I realized fairly quickly that parties, drunkenness, and sexual talk and activity wasn't restricted to the weekends, and not being able to escape it entirely, combined with a bit of curiosity, put me in the middle of this environment. One regular weeknight, my roommate decided she felt like getting drunk 
and it took only a few minutes to find a handful of people on the floor who were interested in joining in. While I could have left my room, I felt a need to protect my space, and since I had always heard stories of how fun it was to get wasted, I wanted to see what it was that made getting drunk so fun. In short time, as I listened to the shallow stories of previous drinking parties, watched my new friends act stupid, and later held my roommate's hair while she threw up everything she drank, I knew that there was nothing about this that was appealing. In fact, it was disgusting. Coming back to school on Sunday nights, seeing the garbage can overflowing with beer cans, toilets plugged, and vomit on the shower floor made me so thankful I went home on weekends. The stories I heard about what had happened made me even more grateful I missed it all. It quickly became apparent to my floor mates that there was something different about me. And while I was eager to share my faith, I wasn't prepared for their fascination in beliefs. In some ways, it seemed they admired and were attracted to my point of view, but at the same time, they were determined to see me fall. One of the senior guys in particular made it his personal mission to torment me. Anytime he would see me in the hall, he would make a crude comment or barrage me with questions about my life of, or beliefs, and at times the attacks were physical, which ranged from tickling to pinning me down on the floor while he verbally attacked me. As an adult now, I see that I was a victim of sexual harassment, but at the time, I thought that unless he attempted to rape me, I just had to deal with it. Everyone on the floor knew he was badgering me, but I guess they didn't think there was anything wrong with it either. Even though I was close to my family, I didn't really share this, especially not with my parents, because I feared they would pull me out of school, and by that time, I was struggling with my biggest problem, myself. Ryan was an engineering student down the hall, also a freshman. He was quiet, but one of those people who just gets along with everybody, and we became friends right away. He helped me with calculus. We had a similar schedule, so we would eat at the same time. And he had a girlfriend about an hour away, so there was no issue there. He was also genuinely interested in my faith. And we had a lot of great discussions about some very deep subjects. It didn't take long for my feelings for him to grow more and more than friendship. And soon, I was entertaining a lie. Satan feeds so many of us. I could bring him to Christ, and then we could get married. What's worse is that he started having feelings for me too, and everyone could sense the chemistry between us, between us and teased us relentlessly. So that he would see my li- what my life was all about, I invited him to one of our ski weekends and our youth group, that our youth group would have every year. It was awkward seeing him at my parents' table where we stopped to eat on our way up north, and just awkward in general having him with the rest of my youth group. But I thought things were okay. Until the morning when we were about to leave, one of the older sisters in youth group pulled me aside privately. In a nutshell, she said, I see what's going on here between you and Ryan, and it's not good. You're in danger. That was really embarrassing to hear, and it did help me to take a step back and reflect. But I was headed back to school, into this fierce battle, and Satan was not easing up. My feelings for Ryan continued to get stronger until one night, as I lay in my bed, A thought came to me. You can bring him to Christ after you sleep together. Yes, you will lose your church membership, but God is a forgiving God. Your roommate's not here. Do it now. Excuse me. And that night, 
Jesus fought Satan for my soul. Like Jacob fighting with the angel of the Lord, I battled that night. Not sure exactly what side I was on, but I thank God, my heavenly Father, that he won the battle. Like Lot pulled from the fires of sinful Sodom and Gomorrah, my soul and body were rescued and preserved for my wedding day years later with a godly husband the Lord had handpicked for me. In many ways, after that night, the Lord gave me a new perspective, and I clung to him for the rest of my time there. I had to transfer after two years because the school didn't have the major that I had chosen, and I made the decision to go to a commuter school and live at home full time. It was difficult adjusting to answering to mom and dad again, but there were many blessings, and my spiritual life continued to grow. While I learned so much from my experience at college, it frightens me to see how Satan will eventually, was eventually able to feed me lies that I knew were wrong, but in the absence of counselors and a godly environment, so easy to believe. As Christians, we must never think we are too strong to fall or, be, or begin to coast in our spiritual walk, whether we live away from home or stay in our comfortable bubble. My prayer is that my testimony could be a help to even one person. A faithful believer, sound in the Lord, put in this environment, had to have her life and soul snatched from the clutches of Satan because she was, there was a battle being fought over her, for her, at Devil's Den. It seems to me we're not doing enough in the churches, all, most all churches, to prepare young people for the experience of higher education because there are some aspects that are really subversive, that are really a challenge to faith, and I think there's more we can do to, to head that off. What does subversive mean? Anybody know? What's subversive? How about one of our educated people up front here? What's subversive? Underhanded deception. Underhanded deception. Thanks, Tom. So here's the professor who has spent his entire life in the halls of higher learning that says Christian young people are going into a subversive environment. Well, one of the most common would be that particularly in the humanities and social sciences, most of what I'll have to say does not apply to the hard sciences, but particularly in the humanities and social sciences, there will be a general assumption of moral relativism, for instance. So let's find out what moral relativism is. Value claims and moral claims are personal, those are your values, and I have different values, and you shouldn't impose your values on me, and vice versa. There will be the assumption that moral claims and value claims are purely subjective, and this is what we sometimes refer to as moral relativism. Well, the interesting thing, Dave, is that very, very few 
first-rate philosophers are relativists because the position, as many philosophers will point out, most good philosophers will point out, is incoherent. If, if you say that uh, this is my tie and I say it's an albatross or a, a jet plane and we're both right, that's relativism in terms of factual claims. That becomes absurd. But the same thing if you say it's okay to torture and kill and slander people, and I say those are very bad things to do, and we're both right, there's no conversation. And if you really think about it, there's no civilization. So moral relativism is pervasive in many of the humanities and in the social sciences, except it isn't applied consistently. Uh, Politically correct ideas are not treated as relative. It's just Christian ideas and ideas about traditional morality and sexual behavior and so on that are treated as personal and relative. So not only is the position of moral relativism largely incoherent, but it's applied unevenly. So let me just stop here for a minute and explain this moral relativism. So what you're going to be faced with when you get to college or to university is that there are no absolutes. There is no absolute right and wrong. If you feel like it, it's okay. Because that's okay for you. There's, there, there's the, the total absence of really right and wrong. And, and, and absolute values that we believe are, are, are based, you know, we know of the absolute, the one absolute that never changes is God. And we know that God's word never changes, so we have absolutes in our lives. But when you get into this college environment, those absolutes are thrown out. The, you will be challenged by people to dismiss those viewpoints. And they'll, you'll be told, listen, that's just what other people have told you to think. You need to discover this for yourself. You need to determine what your own morality should be. So then I asked him, why are the universities moral relativists? I think the history of that is fairly complicated. At one level, uh, I think it's fairly straightforward. Reinhold Niebuhr, for instance, pointed out that, no, it goes all the way back to Kierkegaard, but Niebuhr articulated it in a somewhat different way. Kierkegaard said if you have a high moral standard, but you're living down here, that's uncomfortable. So you either bring your behavior up to the level of the moral standard, or you bring the moral standard down to the level of your behavior. So you say, well, I doubt that this standard is true. But the reality was not that you initially doubted, but that you were disobedient. The standard was here, and you, uh, you believed it was true, but you were living here. And that's uncomfortable. That's a kind of cognitive moral dissonance. So you adjust it. So the opposite of faith is not always doubt. In many cases, it's disobedience. I think what happened culturally is one of the moves in this direction is people didn't want to live at this level. And so they begin to introduce relativism and uh, to absolutize values other than traditional Christian biblical values, and not just Christian and biblical. As C.S. Lewis points out, 
there's a, an amazing homogeneity of fundamental values in almost all cultures. No culture uh, permits gratuitous lying and harm doing and slandering and disloyalty to friends and parents. Uh, they wouldn't survive if they did. But all of this is ignored in much of the discussion in academia today, so that people feel obligated to be moral relativists, even though almost none of them really are moral relativists completely, because it would be chaos. So he talks about two individuals. He talks about Soren Kierkegaard, who he was a Danish philosopher. I'm just giving you the information. And Reinhold Niebuhr was a professor. Um, he was active in the United States between 1955 and 1966. He was an ethicist, a political commentator, and a theologian. But what I want you to get out of what, what Dr. Baer said was that the reason why universities, why, why mankind, but primarily in universities, decided that they needed to be moral relativists is that the standard that God sets for mankind was uncomfortable. It's tough, and it is tough, without the Holy Spirit coming into our life and giving us victory over sin in our lives and enabling us to be reborn, we couldn't do it. So since mankind can't do it, let's just change the rules. Let's just say there are no rules, and whatever you feel, you can do. In a functional sense, the problem with schools today is they're absolutely pervaded with religion, but it's secular humanism. It's secular, humanistic values and beliefs about the nature of reality. So this is helpful for young people to understand because it's not that we're asking for special privilege for having Christian beliefs get a hearing. We're simply wanting equal time. We don't want to be in a school system paid for by tax dollars where secular religion, secular humanism is promoted as, as the orthodox. So that's a much, much bigger subject. But to have some of this understanding ahead of time for young people, it, it really is like getting vaccinations and protecting yourself for this experience. And I just realized that I'm not reading the questions that are on the screen, so anybody that listens to this CD or MP3 has no idea what the question was that I just asked him. But the question I'd asked Dr. Bear was, does Christianity have a place in universities? So I want you to catch what he said. This, what we're doing here, is similar to being vaccinated against what we're going to face when we enter these halls of higher learning. You need to be prepared you need to be aware, and, and we, we've got a lot more advice from him, but this is the whole purpose of this is for you to not go into that environment completely blind as to what's going to happen. So then I asked him, was he ever pressured about expressing his faith? There is a faith? lot of pressure against Christian faculty to conform. Uh, for instance, not only for faculty, but also for graduate students, it's almost impossible to do research today on certain fields like uh, gay marriage or 
homosexuality where you're likely to come up with negative results that show it as very problematic, your future is in trouble. You will not get tenure in most cases. As a graduate student, you'll have trouble getting hired. I have had the experience of uh, uh, being invited to speak in different departments about male-female issues or issues having to do with family policy and so on. And the students loved it. Just sometimes the highest ratings. And, uh, but it was very common experience never to get invited back again because it wasn't orthodox, because I challenged some of the, the, the dogmas. And so I paid a price at Cornell for publicly taking some of the positions I did, but it was well worth it. It, uh, it really was. That's a question. And I think it's interesting that, you know, this is reality here. You're going into an environment where these professors have been there a long time. They've got all kinds of degrees that say they're smart and they're, they're extremely brilliant people. But I asked Dick, I said, Dick, can, can students challenge professors? Not as often as would be desirable. Many, well, let me put it this way. 60 years ago, 70, almost uh, 65 years ago when I was in college, you could argue with professors still about Christian faith. Today, most faculty won't even want to argue with you. They just ignore a lot of the Christian claims. And uh, particularly, if they can label them politically incorrect. If, if we make certain claims about family structure or about premarital chastity or other claims uh, that are very important to us as Christians, a lot of faculty won't even really argue with you. They'll just try to brush it aside and say, these are religious issues, they don't belong in the public square, they don't belong in, in education, we proceed by science and reason. And uh, so it, it becomes very difficult. And in fact, I think the world was better when there was more argument and they took you seriously. Today, it's, it's very dehumanizing uh, just to be ignored. So then we get into a phase where I'm asking him questions about advice. What advice would he give young people? And how can now students address moral relativism? We ought to help them understand that the way the world really is uh, is much closer to traditional biblical and Christian thinking than the university is willing to admit. And relativism is a good example that uh, almost nobody really is a relativist, understandably, because there would be chaos. So to help them understand that we can have certain moral commitments and hold these commitments with conviction, that is fairly liberating. Don't let somebody tell you you can't hold your faith to be true. Don't let anybody convince you that what the Bible says about morality and about family 
is wrong. You have every right to believe it, and it is, it is as logical, and it's easy to defend, easier to defend, than what the moral relativists would be telling you. Then I asked him, can they express their faith in academia? So one of the things that I would think would help young people is to realize that the public square, uh, public discussions at board meetings, school board meetings, and zoning board, and all kinds of issues, or religion and politics, Christian thinking has just as much uh, right to be part of that public discussion as uh, does secular thinking. And I think this would make young people less nervous about talking in a natural way uh, about Christian beliefs and values. For instance, if you're talking about family structure, we don't have to quote Bible verses. That doesn't always work as well, just as it wouldn't work well for a communist to quote Marx and Lenin in an American public school. But what we can say is something like this. From my background as a Christian, we view family structure this way. Or from my belief as a Christian, we uh, believe that uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman. It should be lifelong and, and so on. Catch what he said there. We don't need to quote scripture. And he uses the example, it would be just as the same as if somebody would be quoting Karl Marx or Lenin. But he said, speak from your life experience. Speak, just say, from my background, from my Christian faith, this is what I believe. You have to know your scripture. You have to, this, this scripture has to be committed to memory. But you put it in your own words. But then I said, well, shouldn't we quote, should they not quote scripture? There's nothing wrong with quoting scripture, except that sometimes it turns off the other person. Just as if a Marxist at a school board meeting keeps quoting Lenin or Marx, that doesn't help his cause. So I find it helpful to say something like, from my background as a Christian and from, from our tradition, we look at this this way. Now, we believe that's the right way to look at it, but we don't have to come out and say, this is the only way to look at this. So it's a little bit like when my wife and I invite people to dinner, and maybe some of them are atheists or Muslims or Hindus. When I pray, I don't just... It, omit the phrase in Jesus' name, but I don't say we pray in Jesus' name. At the end of the prayer, I say, I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I think that's a matter of respect. It's a respect for the person who isn't a Christian, but it doesn't compromise my belief that we pray in Jesus' name. So there's nothing wrong with quoting scripture, except it usually is ineffective in a public setting. It can be very, very effective in a one-to-one setting, but when we make the argument publicly, uh, we, we ought to, wherever possible, find reasons 
that will be generally acceptable. I love the point that he made there. So he uses the example, he says, when my wife and I have dinner guests over, and you can imagine the diversity of the dinner guests when you are a professor at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. It's an Ivy League school, Cornell is. Has an amazing campus, by the way. He says, so I bring them together so I may have an atheist and a Muslim at my dinner table. He says, I don't want to offend them. So, and he's, but he doesn't want to omit his prayer, and he doesn't want to omit the fact that he's praying in Jesus' name, which we're told to, how we're told to pray. So he simply says, I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Not afraid of his faith, but making sure that he's not offending anybody else. Think about the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. He could have said, you people are fools. Look at all these dumb idols you worship. But he didn't say that. He didn't attack the fact that they were worship, worshiping them. He said, I perceive that you're superstitious. I forgot the word that he used. But I noticed you have an idol here to the unknown God. That's the one I want to introduce you to. He didn't condemn them. He brought truth to them. So then I asked Dr. Bear, what can you do when you're challenged by a professor? I wish I knew. That is an extraordinarily complicated issue. And my guess is that God calls different individuals to handle it in different ways. I think somebody who's really uh, got a thick skin and a bit aggressive and likes argument, I recommend get into the arena and let your beliefs be known. Uh, others may need to be a little quieter. I think on the whole students err by being too quiet, but the problem is there are some professors who really will grade you down and treat you badly if you disagree with, with the political correctness. Uh, they really will. And uh, there's a lot of discrimination. There are professors that will grade you down. And there's a lot of discrimination. I've asked Tim to come. Tim, you experience, well, first of all, um, what, I'm going to do this kind of like I did with Dr. Bear. So what college do you go to? Can you talk louder? Because I'm not sure that microphone's... I'll come closer to you. You want me to try the other Okay. Okay. So you go to Lemoyne. Now, what, what is the history of Lemoyne College? What type of college is it? So it's actually a, uh, a Jesuit, which is part of the Catholic Church. It's a Jesuit college. Um, there are priests that live on campus. And so when I, that wasn't, obviously that wasn't the reason I chose the college, but I kind of went with the expectation that at least they wouldn't be teaching apostolic teachings, but they would be Christian friendly, was my expectation. So what, what happened when you enrolled in a class that was supposed to be on American Catholicism? Yeah. So that wasn't a class I chose. Um, 
that, that I really wanted to take, but part of their curriculum is you have to take philosophy courses and religion courses and theology. And so last fall I, I took um, American Catholicism, figuring it would be a, a safe course. It wouldn't be something that would be... Um, I wouldn't be challenged on my faith. I'd be learning about somebody else's. And uh, the, the, at the beginning, I thought it was going pretty well uh, based on some of the conversations that we were having in class. It was mostly discussion-based. Uh, my faith came up and we, we talked about it in class. The professor was asking me what church I go to and what we believe. And I felt pretty, pretty comfortable with it. Um, things started to get off the tracks a little bit uh, when he started explaining um, the history of the Catholic Church and went back to where Christianity as a whole comes from. Um, he was explaining the Jews, the story of the Jews, and uh, how Jesus fits into the prophecies of the Messiah. And as he started explaining everything, um, some of the stuff he was saying just didn't seem quite right. You know, every year at Christmas we study the Messiah, we learn where, how all this ties in, and it just didn't add up. And uh, I was careful, I didn't want to be disruptive or disrespectful, but I would just ask him, well, what about, you know, this in Isaiah where it talks about this, or um, little things like that, and he didn't really want to have any of that. He uh, very obviously didn't agree with me and made sure that nobody else uh, did either. Um, right around that time, he assigned an essay that we all had to write. The assignment was that we were supposed to uh, reflect on what he had just been teaching. Uh, it was supposed to be a simple thing, just basically your opinion, explain what he had taught and how you relate to it. So I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity. I'll explain what he said, and then I'll write what I believe, what the Bible says. And I added lots of different verses in there, and a short paper didn't think anything of it. Around the same time, he decided to show a movie. Um, and when he started explaining in class what the movie he was going to show us was, I, something about it made me think, i got to look up this movie. I'm not so sure this is something I want to watch. And sure enough, I found out that this movie is horrible. I mean, you talked about blasphemy. That's, that's all this movie is. And it's just terrible the way it depicts Jesus. It's the light, about the life of Christ. And I thought, there's no way I can watch this. Like, I'm not going to be comfortable at all. And so I decided, you know what? You can miss three days without him taking any points off. I'm just going to not come up to class that day. Not going to be a big deal. Next time we had class, I come in and find out that, that the movie has three parts and he's going to show the other two. So now it's awkward, right? You're sitting in class, he's about to show a movie. And to make it worse, he comes and sits next to me once the movie starts playing because there's an empty seat. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and I just leaned over to him and said, hey, I have to, I have to leave in a few minutes. He said, okay, just watch this scene, and, and then you can go. So I left. And I, that evening, I was talking with, with you, and I was praying about it, and I thought, I really should at least explain myself. You know, he probably knows why I didn't want to watch it, but I should at least give him the, the courtesy of explaining. And so I did. Didn't think anything of it. I sent him an email. Right before I went to sleep, I got an email back, and it was very short. Uh, it basically said, okay, I understand. Um, it will count against you for the attendance policy. By the way, the paper you just handed in, um, you got a zero on it, and I need to talk to you about it. I thought, okay, great. Give me a good night's sleep then. <laughs> um, 
Next time we had class, I, I talked to him. We went out in the hallway. He tried to be nice about it. He gave me the paperback. There was comments all over it. Um, he had a couple interesting things to say. One was he expected me to not want to watch the movie. And when I thought about it after, I realized if I would have just gone along with it, watched it, whatever, you know, write in my notebook or something while it's playing and try to ignore it, that would have been a terrible witness. He knew my faith, and I would have just been sitting there listening to something that was completely against it. So I was glad that I hadn't, I hadn't just sat through it. But he told me, just look at the comments in the paper. He also explained that uh, though he did put a big F on the paper, he wasn't going to count the grade against me. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. That was an answer to prayer. But when I uh, got home, worked up the courage to read what he had written on my paper, I wanted to forget it for a while, but eventually I went and looked it up. And I just want to read you um, one of the, the quotes on there. There was, I mean, pages just covered in the stuff that he was, on his comments. But here was just one of the things he said. If you want to engage with historical criticism, a non-theological analysis of the Bible in historical context, in dialogue with fields of history, archaeology, linguistics, etc., you need to know a lot of information which takes years to integrate. Biblical interpretation is fine, but not as a contradiction of non-theological thought. So I had hoped that maybe I'd misunderstood what the assignment was, and it was just a misunderstanding, but what I found out when I read it was he was upset because I challenged what he had said based on what the Bible says, and I didn't have to get a doctorate to do that. So you challenged his intellect. And he got an F. Now, thankfully, it didn't count against you, which is kind of unusual. Yes, it is. But probably the answer to prayer. So here he goes to a Jesuit school that boasts about the fact that they're based on Christ and, you know, it's, it's the Catholic Church is supposed to have over type of thing, oversight. It didn't matter. What, what, what religion was your professor that was teaching American Catholicism? He didn't have it. It was some backwards thing that he had come up with mixed with all these different religions. It didn't make any sense. So, there you go. Thanks, Tim. Real life. Um, why were you able to have the, or how were you able to have that conversation with me that night at home? Because I was living at home. Because he was living at home. I'm just saying. We got, he was able to have those conversations with me every night when he comes home after having to face these types of things with a professor. We, and we don't have time to get into some of the other wacky classes that he had to take. And he's a biology major, by the way. Should some types of courses be avoided? I would say the best policy would be to learn about the professor teaching the course rather than the course itself. Some courses in anthropology are going to be pretty far out. Courses in... Uh, women's studies and LGBT and other areas, excuse me, will almost by definition be problematic. But my recommendation would be mainly to find out who's the professor teaching it and how tolerant and open is this professor. So then we went on and I asked him, is faith defendable? in a university setting. Even factual claims 
depend upon certain initial philosophical assumptions or commitments or what as Christians we might call faith. You can't live uh, without faith. I used to use the example in class. Um, am I, do I know with certainty, with theoretical certainty, when I get up, get up in the morning before I come to class uh, that my oatmeal is safe to eat? And I say, well, I really don't know with theoretical certainty. Somebody might have poisoned it. That student that I flunked the semester before might have snuck in, you know, poisoned my oatmeal. And then I'm ready to skip the oatmeal and I'm ready to turn the key in the car and I realize, no, we may have uh, put a bomb under the hood. And on and on. In all of these examples, I am not theoretically certain about these factual Issues, but I live with a certain faith that uh, life is goes on, and that these are highly unlikely. So what I'm trying to say is that the whole fact-value dichotomy, the way it's presented in grade schools and many university curricula, is distorted because all of life demands certain initial faith commitments and assumptions and beliefs which cannot be theoretically demonstrated with certainty. And the Bible is much aware of this because, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly and we start with faith. Now, that's getting a little technical, and I'm not sure that it's going to be that helpful, but it's important to understand uh, how those issues work out. I want to reiterate what Dr. Baer just said. He said, everything takes faith. So we're afraid to speak up and, because somebody says, you can't prove, your, you can't prove Christ, creation. You can't prove that the Bible is true. It takes faith. It takes faith to believe the other things that the moral relativists believe. It takes faith to believe all those other theories. And if we, if we can begin from the premise that the reason why they have to dismiss our faith is because if they agree that it is true, they realize they don't measure up. Hence the moral relativist that just had to dumb down the, the expectations for mankind. So remember, everything that you want to believe takes faith. So then I asked him, how does secular reasoning compare to Christianity? One of the things that I, I think is helpful for students to understand is the whole idea that secular reason, thinking that's based on atheistic or humanistic views, that it is inherently more rational than religiously grounded reason, that whole argument has been defeated and shown to be ineffective. Because all human thinking and all human practices rest on certain initial assumptions that function in some ways like faith commitments. We, we can't be theoretically certain using just human reason. And then I asked him, is Christianity logical? All human thinking and all human practices are based on certain foundational commitments and assumptions 
And in that sense, Christian thinking is every bit as reasonable and logical as Buddhist thinking or secular thinking or Marxist thinking and so on. In fact, as Christians, we believe it's more reasonable by, by far. But the other thing I would say is that uh, secular thinking or liberal left thinking or politically correct thinking uh, is certainly not more logical, more rational than traditional Christian thinking. In fact, in many cases, I think it's hugely less. So we need to understand that historically, biblical and Christian thinking has always involved reason as well as faith. So don't let them sell you a bill of goods that it isn't real, that it can't be proven, that it's somehow inferior to other beliefs. Claim the whole premise of a university setting that says ideas should be discussed and do not let them shut you down. Let me give you an example. There always has to be some limitations. In, in a science department, you, you don't allow an astrologer or an alchemist or Lysenko or phrenologist Those are mystic to be part of the team. Type there are of things. always some boundaries. But the claim that Christian thinking is comparable to alchemy or astrology or phrenology is just silly. It's, it's hugely silly. So then I asked him another question. I asked him, is there a danger in isolation? It's very, very hard as an isolated individual to really do well in a context that is as extreme as some of the university contexts. I've asked, hopefully I didn't just start that again. I asked Brother Tom to come because I'm going to interview Tom just for, for a second, and I guess you got to use that microphone. So Tom and I grew up together. The other one? Okay. So Tom, if I remember correctly, you and we're the same age. Yep. Very close. I'm a little bit older. A little bit older than me, like three months. Um, but I remember when, when I was doing my tool and die maker's apprenticeship, you wanted to be a chiropractor. And as I remember this, tell us, how did it go? You, you, you started out at the community college. Right. Two years, lived at home. Ten minutes away, went to community college. And then you applied at how many schools? Uh, well, there's not a ton of chiropractic colleges. I was living in Syracuse, so I was kind of looking more east coast. Uh, there's one in Georgia where there's no church. There's one in one Long Island that was about an hour away from Wood Lake. Um, there was some in the central United States that didn't want to go there. California is a huge expense to get there, so I kind of reserved myself to those two East Coast ones, but I would have preferred to go to New York. Which college accepted you first? Life in Georgia. Life in Georgia. So the college that accepts him first is in Georgia, where there's no church. You still hadn't heard from New York. Right. And what happened I, next? I was provisionally accepted in New York then. Um, for a later semester or something like that. I forgot exactly the details. But, uh, so I had to make a decision. And so I said, forget about Georgia. Primary reasons being, um, I, my parents were strongly encouraging me, you have to be by a church. Uh, and of course there's Christians in Georgia, but um, 
I love this church and I want to be part of it. And so I said, you know, let's forget about that and hopefully it can work out for me um, in New York. So think about this, young people. You, you go through school, through high school, and you try to keep your grades up because you want to be accepted into a college. He gets accepted to the college where there is no church. And then that, ch- that college says to him, you need to tell us yes or no. Are you coming or not? He says no to the college that accepts him and waits. Why would you be willing to do that? God has plans, and I, um, I really, uh, I didn't have a ton of experience being on my own, and that was going to be the situation. I really didn't have an option to live at home, and um, I didn't know a whole lot about the New Jersey church, but there was another dilemma that I added to this factor. There was a girl in New Jersey that I knew a little bit, really attractive, and I struggled. I said, Lord, it was really the first time as a young believer that I was like, I'm not objective here. And so I prayed that way. I said, Lord, you know that it would be great to go there. There's a lot of logical reasons to go there. But there's this girl there. He didn't tell me this part of the story. Well, I'm going to throw this out there because I really really have to pray that um, I wasn't leaning that way for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. But there was was another factor in my mind. I said, Lord, I, I cannot be fully objective here. And... It wouldn't be bad to be around her. She's my wife now, which is cool. But um, truth of the matter is, I, I did struggle with that as well. So this, it, the fact, that, the reason I bring it up is because it's true, and these things are often really convoluted and complicated, and we really don't know the answer. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing to say, Lord, I cannot be objective here. This is really a confusing thing. Lead me. But now, again, retrospect is always so much clearer. I ended up... Um, I was accepted there provisionally, and they ended up bringing me in on time because a couple of people, um, spaces opened up. And I went to school there, and it was really kind of a strange spiritual experience. Is once I got there, um, and again, I had some friends there. Um, two really good friends are now elders in the church, but none of them were baptized. And the only young men there, and I was baptized, the only young men there um, at that church were, were really not taking the role of leadership at the CFG. And I got there, and I got sucked into this vacuum, and I was looked at like this unbelievable youth group leader. I was chairman of Syracuse, but I didn't know what I was doing. Um, There was a lot of great older believer brothers in Syracuse that were, I was was chairman of the CFG before I left once, but it wasn't like I really did a whole lot because all these older guys were there mentoring me. Um, But when I got there, there was none of that, and... I found that the Lord really placed me there because that CFG really um, gelled as a group. But we had a great time together, and I was definitively a leader there, even though I really didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. But everyone supported me, and it's a lot easier to leave when everyone's like, do it, and we'll follow you. So it was really, um, I knew after the fact that the Lord really wanted me there. And even though there was a cute girl there, um, I really, I was just her friend, and kind of actually probably treated her colder than everyone else. Um, but again, I was able to see her work in CFG. She actually wasn't even a Christian when I got there, but she became a Christian when I was there, not because of my specific intervention. But um, um, ends up that I got to know her on a very personal basis um, and to know her family, and uh, the Lord worked it out for me. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that that always happens, but uh, it was really it was part of 
uh, a faith process. Thanks, Tom. So, you know, what I really appreciate about Tom's story is, and I'm glad I now know the rest of the story. Um, I'm done with You're done with that. Yeah. Unless you want to say something. No, I'm done. Yeah. So, <laughs> we're all going to have to be done real quick because I'm running out of time. But think about that, young people. He says no to the school that says, yeah, we want you. But you need to commit. Because it isn't where there's a church. And what does the verse say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33, I believe. He makes that decision, that faith-based decision. I need to be where there's a church. His parents are happy. And look what the Lord was able to do with him. He takes him to where he's desperately needed to fill that role of a young leader and blesses him with the help that was meet for him as the bonus on top of the whole thing. I probably would have been happy if there would have been a, a chiropractic college in Syracuse, but we still were able to stay connected. I want to read another testimony from a sister. I grew up in a Christian home and always desired to be a follower of Christ. I was baptized in our church during high school and had a strong desire to spend time in God's Word and with our church family. I went to a large high school but easily bypassed the many negative influences around me, content to spend time with a small group of girlfriends and my church youth group. I didn't think I gave much thought to the temptations that would bombard me as I started college. I lived at home and commuted to campus every day. I never lived in dorms or joined any social clubs that would pressure me to party or drink. I felt solid in my faith and confident in who I was and what I stood for. What I wasn't careful, what I wasn't careful of in my young faith was the fact that Satan tempts and attacks both weak and strong believers, especially those who desire to be close to God. An attack Satan did. What I wasn't prepared for was the attention I would receive from the opposite sex as soon as I stepped on the campus. This really had not been an issue for me in high school, and all of a sudden I had guys coming up to me in the libraries, restaurants, in lecture halls, and while I sat on park benches asking if I would go on dates or if they could take me out to coffee. The first couple of times it was easy to brush them off, especially when they were complete strangers. But Satan loves to attack in subtle ways, and when his first attempt fails, he tries harder. Later on in my freshman year, I had one young man start leaving his bag behind in a classroom where I had class next, just so he could talk to me a little each day. And I looked away and lost my spot. He was charming, handsome, much older, and drove a European sports car that cost more than my college tuition. I will be honest and say that it felt good to be noticed by someone like that. And instead of relying on my identity in Christ, I began to thrive on the attention this young man would give to me. I made it clear early on that I had no interest in dating this young man, but he had no problem being but I had no problem being friendly. Before long, even though I never called it dating, I was going to lunch with this young man, talking to him on the phone, and had totally given myself emotionally over to him. I had compromised and justified my actions and totally disregarded the tugging of the Holy Spirit's warning of me of the dangers of going down this road. 
As time went by, I could feel my relationship with my parents becoming strained from my constant half-truths of my daily whereabouts, and I distanced myself from church friends and youth group. One night, in the midst of all of this, one of the ministers from church called and told me that God had placed a, a burden to pray for me specifically on his heart. His phone call and words hit me like a ton of bricks. God was using this dear brother to convict me of my sin and bring me to a realization that I needed to repent of my actions and stop spending time in communication with this young man. I will say that it wasn't easy to cut things off clearly, cleanly, and I still carry scars from investing so much of myself into this person. I would never have called my husband. My prayer for young college students is a prayer for wisdom to identify Satan's attacks and for courage to withstand his fiery darts. I feel strongly that this is important, that it is important to stay close to family and church family. Find godly mentors in church to keep you accountable and have them keep you honest and accountable in all areas of your life. If you are holding things back like I did, there's probably some area that needs accountability and confession. It's also important to be open and honest with your parents. As important as godly friends are, parental accountability is even more important. A friend may not give you the same advice, Parents will. And as hard as it may be to open up to your parents, they really want what's best for you and to keep you from pain and baggage. Lastly, we know God is always watching. But if you ever question if you're going somewhere you shouldn't or in keeping questionable company, ask yourself if you would still feel comfortable if your mom was there too. So now we've, we've heard a lot from Dr. Bear. We've heard a lot from the brothers that were here in person. I've read you the testimonies from the sisters, and I, I went back with Dr. Bear, and I asked him the question, should young people be afraid to go to college? Let's hear his response. No. I, I think that they should be wary. We should prepare them. But I don't think they should necessarily be more afraid to go to college than to work for a Sears Roebuck or some company or do most anything because it's a dangerous world in many ways. But on the positive side, when Christ is in, in us and we are part of the body of Christ, we have great strength and God will protect us. But my sense is, no, we should not be afraid, but we should be prepared. Just like to go back to the jungle illustration, the, the ecologist should not be afraid to take people who want to know what the Congo is like into the jungle, but he would be irresponsible not to help them prepare for it in a reasonable way. So the responsibility is with us, with parents and churches and so on, to help prepare our young people for this experience. But the academic life is absolutely wonderful at its best. It's... Uh, it's incredibly wonderful when it works well. So my dear young people, my brothers and my sisters, those of you in the room that have given your lives to the Lord, and unfortunately at this point there's only 30 of you, but I have these words for you, and they're found in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the sixth chapter. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Young people, you will survive, my brothers and my sisters, if you put on the whole armor of God. The other advice, if your parents were here, this is what I would tell them. My advice to them is that they never allow you to go to a college that is not near a church. That they also never allow you to stay in a dorm on campus. You're placing yourself in, 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 a, in a place of risk that you don't need to be at. We have churches throughout this country, from coast to coast, north and south. Parents need to make sure that you're where there's a church. So my brothers and my sisters, don't be afraid. Just go boldly with the Lord. But for my friends outside of Christ, those of you that are yet not my brothers and my sisters, you will not survive the devil's den without the Lord. We've heard the brothers and we've read the the testimonies of the sisters of the difficulties that they faced, some even staying at home. This is a difficult world. Whether we're in college, whether we're not, you will not survive without Christ. But as the Apostle Paul said, I am persuaded better things of you. And I wish you that the Lord would, would, would convict you, that he would speak to you, and that the next time we could meet, we could all be brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you very much.